Good morning. My name is Brian Jones. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I get to teach and cast vision and love on people, and it's a privilege to be able to teach the Bible every single week. And so we want to welcome those of you who are new. We want to welcome those of you who are joining us online or listening. And uh, to get started, what I want to do today is I want to tell you about a guy named Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen was just a brilliant, brilliant man, much smarter than he led on. He um, had this generous personality to him that just drew people in. He was a professor at Notre Dame, at Yale, and at Harvard. He lectured all over the world. He was considered one of the most popular Christians and prolific spiritual writers of the 20th century. You type in his name into Amazon and you get over 130 listings of books that he either wrote or that were written about him. And we're not talking about lightweight, cheesy, self-help Jesus porn that you see in bookstores nowadays. This is deep, profound spiritual writing. And uh, he was one of those teachers and speakers that uh, other teachers and speakers envied because of all of the success that he had. At the height of his career, however, at the height of his fame, his influence, without any fanfare, he left it all behind and chose to devote the rest of his life to the daily care of a profoundly developmentally disabled young man named Adam. He just up and quit everything to care for this young man. Adam was not a relative of Dowland. He wasn't a friend. He was simply someone who needed help. And so Henry decided to give his life to volunteering at a home for the disabled. And when he was given Adam to take care of. And so Henry dressed him, fed him, and cleaned him every single day. In fact, Adam was so profoundly impaired, it took Nowland two hours each morning just to get him out of bed and to get him ready for the day. And Adam was never able to speak. And so not one time did Henry Nowen ever say, hear the two words, thank you for what he did. Nowen died in 1996, and the last 10 years of his life were spent caring for Adam. Here's my question. How do you explain that? Who does something like that? Why in the world would someone at the peak moment in their career leave everything behind to do something like that? The answer to that question not only has the ability to change our lives, but the lives of the people around us. I want to show you two pictures, all right? And here's the first picture. Um, Those of you who are... um, uh, under 35 years of age. This is, you'll see these in museums. They're called checks. Um, you used to have to sign them and give them to people. Believe it or not, it's really weird. Uh, they didn't have Venmo and whatever, whatever else uh, creative apps that there are. The reason I'm showing you this is that when we become followers of Jesus, we hand over to Jesus a blank check. All right? Whenever we submit to the leadership of Jesus 
and we make him our leader and our forgiver, we literally, what we're doing is handing over a blank check. And if we are not willing to hand over that blank check, you're not willing to become a Christian, period. No matter what popular teachers will tell you, no matter how easy people try to make it seem, if you are not willing to hand Jesus a blank check and let him fill out whatever it's going to cost, wherever you're going to go, whatever he wants you to do, you're not ready to become a Christian. Now, like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, a fully committed follower of Jesus, someone who says, I'm in it, I'm ready to go, says, here I am, Lord, send me. But what we want to give Jesus is one of these. (laughs) Right? We want to say, oh, I want all in on this God stuff and making my life better and helping other people and, like, making you somehow a bigger part of my life. But I have to be honest, I have to do it under these certain conditions, right? Uh, This will have to happen, and this will have to happen, and you won't send me there, and you won't ask me to do this, and you won't ask me to give this. There are certain conditions. My question to you this morning is, which have you handed to Jesus? We're finishing today a series called Jesus for the Rest of Us, and we've been talking about how Jesus related to outsiders. First couple weeks, we talked about how Jesus was someone that displayed compassion, And the word compassion we talked a lot about is this twisting of the guts. When you see someone in need, when you see someone hurting, when we have the heart of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus, we feel twisted inside because we want to help them in some way. And so Jesus showed compassion to the outsiders, but that's not all that he did. Today we're going to talk about the second thing that he did. Jesus called them to follow him. Jesus didn't just show compassion, and he wasn't just nice to people. There's this conception in modern-day 21st century Christianity that Jesus is out to show you compassion and to make your life better, like a big, warm TV host giving away stuff. When in reality, the reason he's showing you compassion is to let you know that God's heart breaks for you, but he has a better life for you. He's calling you to something. As the old phrase go, he loves you enough to love you exactly where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you exactly where you are. He's constantly calling us to follow him, to risk, and to change, and to grow. And so when I think of this, I think of a guy in the Bible by the name of Nicodemus. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Uh, For those of you who are new on the way in, there are carts there. We always give away Bibles. Please take one of those home. Put your name on it. That's our church's gift to you. If you have friends that need a Bible, take one of these and go give them to one of your friends. That's why we give them out every week. Or if you're a phone person and you would like to read along, what you can do is you can look at the app. John chapter 3 verse 1 starts this way. It says this. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Now, the ruling council, uh, the other name for that in, in first century Judaism was the Sanhedrin. And it basically was like the Upper Providence Township supervisors if they all had yarmulkes on. And yes, God is in control of our country, but there have to be a group of people who are going to deal with the day-to-day stuff, the management of the town and the streets and the taxes and the temple and all of that kind of stuff. 
Nicodemus was one of those folks. So he came to Jesus, and it's not a coincidence that John says that he came to him at night. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about how in the Bible, the Bible is a collection of 66 books. It's a story of God's interaction with people over a long period of time, and there are four mini biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I always laugh because I have a friend that had a friend that had four boys and named them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Reuben. And John, John in his gospel had a unique um, uh, approach that he was trying to get across. And so you read, if you read John's gospel, and if you've never read it, please go and read it this week from beginning to end. You can finish it in 20 minutes, and eh, maybe 30 minutes, beginning to end. And you'll see these phrases coming up over and over again, light and darkness, day and night. And so when John is saying that Nicodemus came to him at night, this is not some minor detail. He was communicating something. So Jesus and this religious leader named Nicodemus get into this heated conversation. Nicodemus comes to him and he's like, listen, I have listened to you in the temple courts. I have listened to you teaching the crowd. I think you're nuts. I have no idea why you keep saying the things that you do. I want to know by what authority you're saying these things. Part of it was he was a religious leader that was in charge of helping run the town, but also he was curious. He was seriously investigating whether or not he was going to become a follower of Jesus. And so Jesus kept saying crazy things like verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus is like, that is quite possibly the stupidest thing I've ever heard anyone say. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. And basically what John was saying is that Nicodemus came to him at night to have this conversation. They get into this back and forth exchange. And John is basically saying that Nicodemus was in the dark. Metaphorically. And there are a lot of us in the room that spiritually have been in the dark before. Nicodemus wanted to know if he could fit Jesus into his life. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't want Jesus to sort of upset his comfortable routine. I got my thing going. I'm a very structured person, Jesus, because I got I just want to make sure I understand all the parameters before I sign on to this. Later in the conversation, Jesus said to Nicodemus, this is the verdict. Light, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about Nicodemus. This is Jesus's way of saying, hey, you, Nicodemus, you want me to sign a prenup. You want me to sign a prenup that I am not going to disrupt your life in any way, shape, or form. The reason we're having this conversation at night in the darkness is because your deeds are evil. And you're not willing to allow your life to go into my hands and determine what's going to happen. You're saying, I want to keep my job, the prestige, the authority, the comfort, but I want you to follow me. I love what Kyle Eidelman says in his book, Not a Fan. He says, there's no way to follow Jesus without him interfering with your life. Following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus always 
costs something. For Nicodemus, it would cost him a powerful position. It would cost him the respect of his co-workers. It would cost him his source of income and his livelihood. It would cost him his friendships. It would likely cost him some family relationships. This brings up a very telling question for most fans of Jesus. Has following Jesus cost you anything? Most of us don't mind Jesus making some minor changes in our lives, but Jesus wants to turn our lives upside down. Fans don't mind him doing a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants complete renovation. Fans don't want to want fans come to Jesus thinking tune-up, but Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine. Jesus is thinking about makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required. Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them. But Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. And so here's my question. As you're looking back over the last five years of your life, as you're looking at the last six months of your life, do you keep handing him a prenup or are you handing him a blank check? And the way you can tell is, you know you've handed him a prenup when everything's in control. Everything's fine. Everything's predictable. Nothing different has happened. There are no risks. There are no changes. There are no dangerous conversations that we have with people at work. There are, there are no issues of conflict that we're willing to dig into and deal with in our families. Because I got my thing over here, and I will turn to you when I need some help, preferably when I have a flat tire, I need more money, or I'm in the middle of a bad movie, and my wife is one of these people that won't let me leave. She will do it all the way to the bitter end, so I will pray, please, God, cause the movie theater, the lights to blow up. Jesus is saying, I'm not promising you anything. You want a prenup with all these conditions. I'm not promising to make you successful. I'm not promising to make you wealthy. I'm not promising you safety, comfort, popularity. In fact, you're probably going to die. How's that for a sales job? Who wants to do that? But he's like, listen, I actually will just make you one promise. I'm never going to leave your side. Ever. I'm going to always be with you. Regardless of where I send you, how painful it might be, how much you're called to sacrifice, even giving up your life, I want you to know that I will never leave you. Ever. Spouses will leave you. Kids will leave you. Parents will leave you. I'll never leave you. So the question I have for you this morning is, are you handing God a blank check or a prenup? Now, to those of you who haven't signed a blank check yet over to God, I just want to say two things. First, Jesus totally gets how hard giving him a blank check will be. It's like, this is not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus isn't like one of these completely, uh, a teacher that is lacking complete self-awareness. It's like, this is a very hard, difficult, sometimes terrible thing to ask someone. I'm going to give you a blank check. I remember when I became a Christian, um, I was willing to go anywhere and I was willing to do anything. And so God started putting a dream on my heart that I was going to be a missionary. 
And um, those of you, who have, a couple of you who have spent some time in the mission field, you know what a very arduous calling that can be. But I felt God wanted to be a missionary. But I wanted to determine where I was going to go. So, God, I, I'm going to give you like a modified prenup blank check, right? Half of it is a blank check. I'm willing to be a missionary. The other half is going to be, I'm going to determine where this thing is going to go. I remember one time I was laying on the couch and I was praying, God, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to go as a missionary? And um, I said, here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to lay back. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to clear my mind. And I promise you, I promise you, the first name that you bring to mind, I'll go there and I'll spend the rest of my life. I promise you. I laid back down, cleared my mind. First name that came to my mind, Greenland. I sat up and I was like, okay, let's try this a second time. I, I don't think you sort of get what I'm going for here. And um, here's what you need to understand. This is an interesting spiritual principle that St. Augustine in the, in the um, late 4th and 5th century really got a hold of. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will want the things that God wants, and God will want the things that you want. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you're going to want the things that God wants, and God will want the things that you want. Because the closer you get, the more your hearts are going to be in sync. A lot of you have grown up in shame environments and churches where there are things that are tr- like truly God wants and they're awesome for your life. And you're like, well, yeah, I like feel guilty for this. Like, should I even want this? And God's like, who, who told you that you couldn't enjoy life? God wouldn't be, be a missionary, but he wanted to be a missionary in the United States. And a friend told me in 1985, why don't you just be a missionary to the United States? I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do. This is before there was a term called church planting. I just thought churches always existed. God was calling me to be a missionary. I wanted to be a missionary. I actually wanted to be a missionary in Arizona, in Phoenix, because you don't have to shovel the heat in Phoenix. (laughs) There is no snow, I guarantee you, in Phoenix right now. But God wanted me to be here. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. Here's the second thing I especially want to say for those of you who are not completely bought into Jesus yet and you haven't given him a blank check. I want you to, I want you to see this verse of scripture. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. Psalm 34 is an interesting psalm. Up at the beginning, it says it's a psalm of David uh, when basically he was acting crazy in front of a guy named Abimelech. And it's a story essentially in the Old Testament where David, in order to save himself, goes to this town named Gath, and before the king, he acts like he's mentally insane. And he's like, well, this guy's crazy. I'm not going to kill him. And so he let David go. Now, why is Gath, why does Gath sound familiar? Ever heard that town? There was an earlier story in David's life where his brothers all went out to war and he was bringing them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in a basket. And he's getting ready to give his brothers these sandwiches and there was this giant out there, Goliath from 
Gath. And turn around, went out and killed him with a few stones. My point is, is that you never know where your life is going to go. You never know where your life is going to turn as a little 14-year-old boy goes out there and kills this giant. And the Philistines are routed that day. And here David, as an older man, is being routed by his own people. And he gets to this town. He has to act crazy to save his life. They let him go. He walks away. And he pins this little song, Taste and See That the Lord Is Good. Why is that important? Because some of you have been divorced. Some of you are having financial stuff. Some of you are having health problems. Some of you, your expectations for where you thought you would be right now in your life are woefully different from where you thought it was going to turn out. And David comes along and he says, taste and see that the Lord is good in the midst of those things. Because the prenup is, God, all of these things are never going to happen to me. But then they happen to you, and then God comes along and he says, the only thing I ever promised was, I'm not going to leave you. And that's enough. Having God with us in the midst of those hard times is enough when you taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm going to show you um, a, a picture for those of you who are, have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Um, the Bible tells us at the beginning of time, God created um, two human beings. I believe these two human beings actually existed. I believe that they were fully formed human beings, that they were not developmentally existing after millions and millions and millions of years. I think they're shorter. I think they're hairier. I think they could walk on the drums without tripping. They did lots of things. <laughs> love you, bro. I love you, bro. I love you. So, uh, the Bible tells us, you, you get away with that hat, man. I can't do that. You know, there are people that wear these winter hats. Anyway, so the Bible tells us that at the beginning, God created us to have a relationship with him. Can you put that picture back up? I don't want to look at myself this whole time. Here we go. The Bible tells us he wants to have a relationship with us. He loves us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Being in a relationship with God is the best thing that will ever happen in your life. You are fully alive. As um, St. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And we're fully alive as human beings when we're connected to God. But unfortunately, Adam and Eve sinned against God. And that sin created barriers between them and God. That connection that they felt, the awesomeness of being with God and being fully alive was broken apart. And what has happened is that every single human being after that essentially created that barrier between them and God. And so what we do is we try to get back over to God. We want to feel awesome. We want to feel fully alive. We want to be with you. And so we start doing good things. We start going to church. We start doing lots of things. But in reality, all of these good things fall short. And what the Bible says is that the bad news of Christianity is, and a lot of people will never share this, is that if you never fix this, this, this brokenness that you have right now will continue for all eternity. The Bible calls this hell. Hell is eternal conscious torment for all eternity. He uses flames and gnashings of teeth in the Bible, but that's not the point. The point is you're separated from God. The good news of Christianity is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and he died on the cross, and that cross 
paid the penalty of hell for every single person here and then serves as a bridge over which we go over to God's side to feel fully alive again, to taste that the Lord is good. And that the Bible says we need to do three things. We need to believe that this is true. God so loved the world as he told Nicodemus that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the first thing. So you believe this. The second thing is that the Bible says we need to repent. Repent comes from an old English word which should turn our minds. It's the Greek word metanoia. It's not just a changing of our minds, but it's a changing of direction. I'm going here. I'm going to go here. And then the third thing the Bible says we need to do is we need to, we need to be baptized. A lot of us grew up in church traditions where we were told that we were baptized as infants, but we didn't experience it because it wasn't our decision. And when your parents did that, for many of you, it was a very good thing. It was a, it was a, it was a wonderful thing that they did. It was the best that they knew how. We're so thankful for those who have been sprinkled as children. But baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which meant to dunk under water. Babies were never meant to be baptized. That only came about eh, roughly about the middle of the third century. And the, the tradition just went on from there. The Bible says that people who were old enough to believe and to repent are old enough to respond in baptism. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a baptism service right now. We're going to give you the opportunity to respond. We have towels. We have things to change into. So we're going to open up the doors there. And as uh, Stephanie opens up the door, Matt should be there. We were thinking about playing angelic music so Matt can be there with his arms and stuff. Um, But we have um, uh, some volunteers and staff members over there. And we have areas where you can change. And what we're going to do is we're going to give everybody the opportunity to say, I believe, I repent, and I'm going to be baptized. God, here's my blank check. When you do that, you will taste and see that the Lord is good. So in just a moment, the band, they're going to sing. And I want you to get up. I want you to walk on over. Give them your name, change, and then join Matt in the baptistry. And we'll baptize you. Why wait? Why wait? Do it today. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, go to happinessable.com.